How's it going, Rick? It is going, Michael, and I'm going to welcome everybody to another edition of Perception Reception. Today's guest is Michael Tyler, who authored the book, The Skin You Live In. Time Out, in reviewing the book, said, and I'm quoting now, this sweet picture book might be designed for little readers, but it tackles big messages, including the importance of acceptance, diversity, and friendship, unquote. At this defining moment in the U.S., how exactly should parents and educators, for that matter, discuss issues of racial bias and equity with children. The Skin You Live In stands out by accurately, forthrightly, and appropriately addressing race and discrimination in a way that youth can grasp and process. Michael, can you talk about why you decided to write this book in the first place? Uh, Yes, this book started um, in much the same way this conversation begins in a lot of families. I had a son who at age five, both my sons being interracial, at age five was on the playground, the school one day, and some kids were taunting him about his skin color and about his hair texture and everything else. And he was called a name. And as I've often said, it wasn't a name on his birth certificate. Uh, (laughs) It was called a name, uh, a racially derogatory name, disparaging name. And when he came home that day, it was a problem he presented to me. And as often as the case with children who are in situations like this, when they hear such a name, uh, they often don't know what it means. They just know it makes them feel bad. And so I had to try to explain to him the origins of the word and explain to him why people use it. And it was a very difficult conversation for me to try to have not only because of the emotional distress that I as a parent was in, realizing that my son had suffered such an incident that I would have loved to have spared him, but also even more so because of the psychological, emotional distress that he was in. And all of that was magnified by the fact that I could not have this conversation with him because the intellectual bandwidth necessary for me to really convey what I wanted to for a five-year-old, just wasn't present. It's a conversation that adults have incredible difficulty talking to each other about, which is why we still have this problem, because isms are adult problems that are imposed upon children. No one is born hating another religion. No one is born hating another color. And so me realizing that I wasn't equipped to really have this conversation with them, conversation I've been having with adults for decades, I said to him, I did what most parents do in the moment, and I took the parental cop out. And I said, I'll get a children's book, and I'll read it to you, and then we'll be able to have a conversation about this. And so I spent the next two weeks uh, passionately pursuing this project that I had, and I read 347 books that dealt with discrimination issues for children. And... I also read a lot of parental guides about this. And I realized that with respect to the parental guides, I looked up the reading uh, numbers on it. And less than 1% of the adult population were actually reading these guides. So (laughs) the only people who were really reading them were, as, as the adage goes, they were being preached to the choir. And so when you look at 1%, less than 1% of adults in the population reading books like that, greater than 99% of those in the population not reading books like that, 
it's no wonder that this problem continues to be recycled over and over again. But when I read the children's books, I realized that there were some problems in the paradigm, story paradigms in many of these books that I just didn't like. And one of them was that they would take inanimate objects to try to convey a concept. Uh, for example, they would take a box of crayons and the crayons would not like each other because they were all different colors and they thought that their color was better until a, a, a girl comes along and draws a beautiful picture. And then they all realize they have a beautiful color that can contribute to the picture equally. Now for the mother, the father, the grandparent, aunt, uncle, teacher, educator, caretaker, reading that book, it makes us, the adults, feel good about ourselves that we are delivering this kind of a message to a child. But for children, it's just talk to, talking crayons. That's, <laughs> that's all it is. They talk to their teddy bears at night. They talk to their toothbrushes in the morning. It's just talking crayons. The child's understanding at that age is far more literal than it is conceptual. And that I realized. So I thought that the concept of a book like that just was missing the mark or books like that were just missing the mark that it needed to be much more literal. And then other books that I read is they would set up a situation in which a character was introduced to a community and a character was very different, odd, unusual, and immediately were ostracized because of their difference until that character did something to benefit the community. And then they were embraced by the community. And to me, that was a message that was teaching, being taught to our children that says, your value is nothing until someone esteems your utility, not your humanity, but your utility. If you aren't useful to them, then it's okay for them to ostracize you and demean you and disparage you. And that was not a lesson I wanted to teach my child. But the overall theme that I found in reading these books was the one that troubled me the most. And that was they were all promoting tolerance. And we do that in this country. And we promote tolerance as a moral virtue. And every time we have an uprising or incident of hate, our political leaders, our clerical leaders, our educational leaders all come out and say we need to have more tolerance. And if you understand what that word really means, it simply means endurance. It means to bear. Okay, I can shake your hand at first meeting and give you a firm handshake. And that's supposed to convey our manliness, but I can overdo it and it can actually create pain for you. Now you'll just tolerate it for the sake of civility of that moment, but that's not a sensation you want to have in your hand all day long, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> we can walk down the street and smell foul odors coming out of the sewer. We don't want that odor to follow us all day long, but we will tolerate it until we can get past it. And so tolerance is only saying to people as an instruction, that it's okay for you to have a malignant opinion of someone. But because we institute these laws, you can't have a malignant conduct towards them. But you can still have your malignant opinion towards them. And to me, that's not a message that I wanted to promote to my child. I didn't want to teach him that he should be tolerated. His humanity, his persona should just be tolerated. Nor did I want him to do that to anyone else. And so... I was left with this dilemma as the two weeks were going by and my son was every single day asking me for this book that I had to write it. <laughs> I had to simply sit down and write the book. And the starting point that I had was when I look at race-based discrimination, 
that it's an issue of appearance and that appearance most often is skin color. And so in keeping with not wanting to deliver a conceptual message to him and deal with it literally, the idea of talking to him about what his skin was and wasn't is what gave me the title of the book, The Skin You Live In. I wanted to teach him what it meant to live in his skin. But I also wanted to use the opportunity in terms of writing it as a book to present an audit to adults when they read the book, because adults are reading the books to children. And that audit was, because there's a part in the book where I dispel the mythology that we lay onto skin, that it isn't this and it isn't that. And I wanted the adults to be able to read that to a child and at the same time ask themselves, is that what I do? And to me, I thought it would be a better approach to have that kind of audit for the adult reader rather than the approach that I was always seeing in so many other books that were, that were loaded with historical triggers, that were loaded with psychological and emotional triggers. And I didn't think we get anywhere by triggering people, that we needed to have an introspective evaluation as opposed to a triggered evaluation. And that's how I came to write the book. You know, Michael, I, I was sort of hearkening back to my own youth. Um, and the, there was an incident that happened uh, back in, well, I think it was 1969. And I had only had a car for a year. My, my parents uh, were not well off. And so uh, we took the bus everywhere. We didn't have a car. And when my dad passed away in 68, uh, that's when I got a car. And I promptly uh, was uh, driving too fast and, uh, uh, you know, got stopped by um, Chicago police. And in the course of getting the ticket, uh, which I richly deserved, the cop called me a name that has been used for Jewish people. And um, uh, so I'm going to say it. He called me a kike. And it is now all these years later, I still remember that. I mean, I, I, I don't remember a lot of things about my uh, youth, but I remember that happening. So that was one moment. And so I, I try to think about how uh, do young black men and women deal with this happening, not as a singular moment, but every day of the week, something that you have to be thinking about every day of the week. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, about that? Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up that one moment. I could recount many moments that I've had with police officers. Um, there were even more intimidating, uh, more physical, more violating than that moment. But the moments that I've had in public in general, which is what you're addressing, is what African-Americans have to deal with on a daily basis. The only way I can summarize what that is is to call it a psychic assault. Every single day that we walk out of our homes and we enter into the racially stratified America that we enter into, we are bracing ourselves, whether we're consciously aware of it or not, we're bracing ourselves for what we imagine might happen. And that imagine might happen becomes all the more fearful or provocative when we see it with a uniform, a badge, and a gun. But every single day, the psychic assaults, for example, when I walk down the sidewalk, I have to watch people trying to avoid eye contact with me, much the same way they would try to avoid eye contact with a rabid dog. 
because they think if they look at me, it's going to provoke the snarling attack. I have to watch people clutch their purses and pat their wallets, their pockets for their wallets. Uh, I'll have people who are walking behind me walk in front of me. Now, I'm not following them, right? So they're, they're coming from behind me, walk in front of me. And the moment they get in front of me, they will spend the rest of the time turning around to look at where I'm at. <laughs> when I walk into stores, I don't get asked, may we help you? I get followed. And to the extent that I'm ever asked, may we help you, it's a person who's only camouflaging an attempt to follow me. Uh, I have to always wonder, I have rehearsed in my mind, as many African-Americans do, you've heard the conversations that black parents have to have with their children who are stopped by police officers in the car as you would stop. I have rehearsed in my mind, as many African-Americans have, all the lines that I have to say for the dress rehearsal conversations or interactions I might have with someone who may disparage me racially. Not just a cop, but anyone. And so it is, the only way I can summarize it is, it is a psychic assault. All day long we live with that until we get back home. And we're just happy that if we have a day where it doesn't happen, but almost every day it does happen. And I, I, I've got to say, uh, you know, I have uh, family who were in the police. Um, I have very close friends who are police officers. I love and respect them. I, I, I respect the police uh, and the people who do their job day in and day out with, with honor and respect. But it is troubling. I, I, I was in preparing for this. I saw that uh, using databases from Mapping Police Violence and the Washington Post, CBS News, they did this um, at uh, the beginning of September of this year. CBS News compiled a list of 164 Black men and women who were killed by police from January 1 to August 31, 2020. Many of these cases remain under investigation. So why does this keep happening? What, what, what is uh, broken uh, and how can it be fixed? Uh, because I'm not sure, you know, destroying police forces is a particularly good way to go about doing it, but clearly something needs to change. And, and so what is it and why hasn't it? Okay, from, from my perspective, and I will start off also by saying many of my family members were also military people and police people. Uh, the one man who shaped my mind most for writing, my mother's first cousin was a police officer. He was on Harold Washington's personal detail. And to me, and I would agree with you, I'm not in favor of eliminating police departments. I think we need to reform them. But I also think we need to reform how we're training police officers. I think that in many cases, we're overburdening them with things that they shouldn't be doing, that we need to equip other social services to handle. But to the greater question of how do we change it is a greater problem. The greater problem is the overall indoctrination of this country. And here's what I mean by that. When I was trying to get the Skin You Live In published, it got rejected 147 times over a 10-year period. And I had an editor from a publishing house call me up one day, which is a rare occasion. It's like St. Peter calling you to let you know you're about to come in. <laughs> and she said that in her 16 years of reviewing manuscripts, 
that she had never read anything that was written better about this particular subject, which was confusing to me because I had just opened up the rejection letter from her company. <laughs> and she said that she wanted to tell me how to get it published. And I'll skip ahead to the part that's most germane to what you're asking. She said that publishers and editors are not imported from an island of virtue. They come from the same America that you come from. So the reason why we have judges and police officers and teachers and priests and so on and so on who can't see what you wrote is the reason why we have publishers and editors who can't see what you wrote. Now, I say that because the overall problem is there is an institutionalized racial indoctrination in this country that has gone on since the inception of this country. And part of that indoctrination is to view people of color, particularly African-Americans, as individuals who are not full-fledged citizens, as individuals in many cases who are not full-fledged human. We came into this nation being fractionalized. We were three-fifths of. And we've also been labeled and stigmatized with being less morally credible. But here's the main thing that speaks directly to what you're talking about. We've been stigmatized as being criminally intent and having criminal intent, that our entire existence is predicated upon a motivation for criminal intention. So if that's part of the indoctrination of the country, and that's not something that's, that just white Americans are indoctrinated by us, anybody who's not African-American is indoctrinated to that. If that's part of it, and our police officers are coming from the greater community of America, then what are they to think when they have a badge and a gun? and a uniform, that we are more criminally intent, motivated for criminal intention than anyone else, which is the reason why we live with criminal suspicion every single day of our lives, walking down the street. I have walked down the street pushing a stroller with my child in it, with grocery bags loaded in a stroller, and people will still clutch their purses and check their pants pockets to see if their wallets have been telekinetically lifted out of their pockets. <laughs> as I walk down the street. It's because this indoctrination of criminal intent has been promoted as being a legitimate and a logical mindset to have as a protective measure against their own security. That's a very difficult thing to break down. And until we begin to think about how do we break it down in general American public, general American community, we can't even begin to address how we break it down with respect to law enforcement. Because we understand the law enforcement people out there aren't imported from an island of virtue. They're coming from the same America that everybody else comes from. And given that the overwhelming majority of people in law enforcement historically, particularly those who've been policing African-Americans and people of color and indigenous people have been white American men. And so there's no real check and balance for them to ever have an introspective or reflective moment to understand that that is an error mentality when that is the standard indoctrination everywhere you go. And that is the greatest problem. We have to deal with the overall indoctrination of race in this country wherever they address it within our law enforcement. The reality, though, is that it isn't just a, a police problem. So going back, I got involved in politics back in the, in the 60s. 
uh, have been involved one way or another uh, ever since and had the privilege of working for two presidents. And I remember in 1968, I was uh, at that time, I was national press coordinator for Gene McCarthy uh, and his campaign. And of course, you know, in uh, the spring of that year of 68 is when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated and cities erupted, including Chicago. And a lot of damage was done in neighborhoods of color, uh, West and South. And we're sitting here now in 2020. And I, I don't know that much has happened to change those neighborhoods. Uh, I know people have talked about it. I know money has been put into it. I know there are really wonderful organizations, community organizations, faith-based organizations, foundations, but yet you still have, you know, real decay. It really is, is in a lot of ways, the tale of two cities. And so what's, what's wrong? What's happening? How come communities, West and South and the city of Chicago, and you can point to other cities uh, that have the same issues, uh, why is progress not made uh, with all the people with good intentions coming together? I think that part of the problem in speaking, with, speaking to what you just spoke of, people with good intentions, is oftentimes you see those good intentions expressed in reaction to a trauma, a social trauma. You spoke of Martin Luther King's assassination in 69. And so there was a good intention expression then. You saw the Montgomery bus boycott. And for the first time it was televised nationally how black people were treated in this country. And so there was a good intention expression that led to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And so oftentimes this good intention and, and many times it is well-meaning, sometimes it's cosmetic, but many times it's very well-meaning. It's not sustained by conviction. It's merely a reaction to. And, and unless there is a conviction to have a full enfranchisement of people who've been disenfranchised, to have a full recognition of their humanity and not an ostracized oppression of their race, until that happens, then the greater issue of the infrastructure of change is not going to be set down because that requires conviction. A conviction is an unyielding effort. It's not a situational effort. It's an unyielding effort. And there have been those who have made that unyielding effort. It just has not been enough. It has not been the majority of people in this country. It's not been the majority of white Americans in this country. The other part of that is the difficulty of living with an ingrained mentality over centuries of being less than. And that is a very difficult thing to overcome. When I was growing up and heard we shall overcome, I always thought, how do we overcome that first? Okay, because we will always have to deal with this other thing. But the one thing that we have to really look at is how do we overcome still being shackled mentally to a mentality of being less than. And the adage that I've always given my sons is that a less than mentality will never create a greater than reality. And so we have to look within ourselves about how to address that. And that's a lot of psychic healing. 
That's a lot of mental health healing. That's a lot of social reconditioning. That's a lot of understanding what indoctrination has done. If the two of those things could ever merge, if African-Americans on a whole can have a new identity focus that finally brings us beyond that less than mentality that we internalize. And oftentimes it comes out in very caustic ways within our own community. And if that moment could be met with a real conviction by the vast majority of people in this country to fully enfranchise not only African-Americans, but women, indigenous people, these are groups that have always been marginalized and, and disenfranchised. Uh, the, the same things that I'm saying about what it means to be African-American, we can find almost any woman, regardless of what race she is, can almost say the same thing. And it's because women have also been maligned by patriarchy, similarly the way that African-Americans have been maligned by racism. And there has to, there has to be a, a point in the psychic evaluation of those who are in power, the hierarchy, to understand that they need to have a conviction for this. The problem with that lies in the word equality, okay? And, and people have heard me say this before and they scratch their heads. Some people, get, the banner gets up and they get ready to fight when <laughs> it is. Because what I'm saying is, is controversial. When you are disenfranchised, abused, violated, mistreated, pushed outside of, your emotional reaction is you want equality. You want to be treated as an equal. The problem is equality really exists in two forms. There's an equality in humanity. You and I breathe the same air. You and I need water. You have a heart, I have a heart. You have internal organs, I have an internal organs. As a matter of fact, my internal organs may save your life one day and vice versa. My blood may go in your veins one day and vice versa. So what that means is that our physiology as human beings is equal. But the real issue is equality in society, okay? And equality in society means that you and I and everyone has equal access to actualize their own destiny, equal access to the resources to actualize their own destiny. But in any stratified, stratified society and most Societies are stratified. There's a hierarchy, whether it's educational hierarchy or economic hierarchy or political power hierarchy. The identity of the nation or society is defined by who's at top, right? So in a patriarchal society, when men are at top, women do not share the privileges that men assign to their identity. So to bring it back to America, when women ask men, why can't you treat me equally, or why can't you treat me like a human being? It's because for men who are running that society and who have established it, being equal means what does it mean to be another man? And being human means what does it mean to be fully man? That's the reason why we've always used terms like men and man and mankind to describe all of humanity. Therein lies that bias. And so when African-Americans look at European-Americans and Blacks look at whites, to use it politically, and we say, why can't you treat me equally? And why can't you treat me like a human being? It's because what has been defined as equal, meaning full-fledged citizen, and what has been defined as being human in this country has been defined, what does it mean to be white male? Because it's been white males who've made the definition distinctions about identity in this country. And so if you look at equality that way, equality in humanity, equality in society, 
then what equality in society actually becomes is a grant. That's the reason why we have to petition for it and we have to protest for it and we have to lobby for it because it becomes something that those who have the ability to bestow it have to be inclined to do so. And so when you're looking at a situation like that, it means you're always leaving your destiny and a society to the hands of those who don't want you in society in the first place. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, I mean, talk about, because where we began was acceptance versus tolerance. And so as you uh, are, are describing this journey or that needs to happen here, how can acceptance change, at least begin to change the way that these are uh, these ingrained perceptions play out. I'm glad you asked that. And before I answer that, I just want to finish up on that last point. That the thing I think that people who are disenfranchised need to pursue most is parity. Parity will bring about their equality at some point because parity means you have the leverage to position yourself in society, and that leverage is an autonomous game. It's not a grant. So I just wanted to finish that up. But respect to the acceptance and how that helps. Is acceptance, if you understand it the way I do, the way that I have taught it to my sons and the way I try to promote it to other people, requires three things. It requires a recognition of the individual in front of you. It requires an acknowledgement of the individual in front of you. And most importantly, it requires that you affirm their humanity is equal to yours, that there is a universal humanity that we all share and are valued by. And so when you look at those steps, when we, walk, when we walk down the street, we don't even look at each other. So how are we getting to step one? Okay, we're not even giving each other the recognition. If we're not doing that, we're not making that eye contact, that visual contact. We're not having the conversational contact. How are we even acknowledging each other? And if we're not acknowledging each other, how do we ever get to learn enough about one another to see that that universal humanity is actually tangible and real, and then we affirm it? So... My answer to that is we need to understand the complexity of what acceptance is, is that it does involve these three things. And that in order to really promote it, we need to teach that it involves these three things. I've had many speaking engagements and people will say to me, like, what's the one thing you can tell me that I can take away and I can go out there and I can make this change? And I say to them, when you walk down the street, I want you to look at people in the eye. That's the recognition part, right? And I want you in your mind, not on your face, because 80% of our communication happens here and in tone, voice tone. Not on your face, don't say a word, but in your mind, look at that individual you're looking at and say hello, just in your mind. Project hello and how you're looking at them. And if they acknowledge you, that's the second part, a nod, a smile, then you know that you've begun that process of getting someone else into the mode of acceptance. Because if that happens enough, eventually those glances will become conversations. And then they will become comfortable conversations. And then they will become meaningful conversations. And that will lead to this conviction that I'm talking about. But we just need to understand what acceptance really means. It means those three things. I have to ask, and we're winding to the end here of of our time, Uh, I have to ask about, the riots that have happened. Uh, you know, we had riots in 68 after Dr. King 
uh, was assassinated. Uh, we had riots across the country starting in L.A. in 1992 after uh, Rodney King was beaten and, and uh, the officers were acquitted. Uh, and we've had riots this year uh, after uh, the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And does that impede the ability to have the kind of parity that you're talking about? It, does it impede the ability to have acceptance um, because people are reacting to what they view uh, violent acts? So can you address that? Yeah, I would say that it impedes it, but I would say you have to look at that comprehensively because you have to look at what sets up the riots as also being what impedes it. Because as what, uh, I think it was Martin Luther King said that violence or riots are the expression of the powerless. I'm, I'm paraphrasing that, but I think it's pretty close to what it, what it meant. And so when I look at riots and when I look at protests and I look at reactions, first of all, a lot of what we saw as riots, because the overwhelming majority of those protests were very peaceful. A lot right. of what we saw as riots were provoked. <laughs> some of them were uh, angry expressions, but some of them were actually provoked, they were instigated. But nonetheless, to me, the impediment comes from what lies in place in America that still creates the situation where cyclically we will see this occur. I, I like to throw out uh, a definition of a word because we, we, we just got to saying that riots were an expression of the powerless or the voiceless. Power is the ability to define a reality and have others live that reality as if it were their own. And if you have no ability to find your own reality, then you're constantly living in a state of powerlessness. Now, the easiest way to express power in any situation is through violence. Destroy something, go step on a bug, you've just displayed power. For a man to hit a woman, you've just displayed power. To tear up a piece of paper or to throw a glass against the wall, just display power, but you've not created a constructive reality. And so absent a real venue and a real mechanism and a real hope to take that desire for self-determination and have it become the power to define your own reality, it will always be expressed like that. And in that expression, because you understand that expression is provoked by the circumstances of this country, all it does is reinforce the indoctrination that people want to continue to believe in. So therein goes the cycle over and over and over again. And so the difficulty to me is trying to get people to understand that what they see and they have an aversion to is something that is in their power to completely eliminate because they've been defining the reality for everyone else. You understand what I'm saying? I absolutely do. Yeah. And so to me, that's how it has to be evaluated. Do you see a day, I mean, we've had a lot h happening um, with the pandemic and the pandemic has uh, put on uh, display again, uh, the disparities that exist in communities of color and we're seeing uh, African-Americans, Hispanic uh, dying at, uh, you know, huge rates. Uh, you have cities that are still trying to deal with neighborhoods that are decayed and, and, and where gangs um, are prevalent. How, do you, how can you be optimistic 
in that because I think I think you can't address these issues from a perspective of pessimism. You you have to it, you you can only do it if you're optimistic. And, and so, how do you get there against this backdrop of disparity and racism? Some of it overt, some of it behind the scenes, and the strife that's going on and the decay that never seems to get addressed fully. I would, I would agree with you that optimism is essential. It's very difficult to maintain, but I would agree with you it's essential. I maintain it because of two words. I'll offer them and I'll offer what they mean to me. The first word is hope. And as I define hope, it's an emotional align, alignment to possibility. You align yourself to the possibility that something can be different, that something can be better. And the single most detrimental state of mind that a human being can have is to be hopeless. To come to a point in life when you see no possibility in anything is oftentimes what leads people to suicide. It leads people to self-destructive behaviors. And so I always, if it's a 1% chance, I'm always aligning myself to the possibility that that can happen. If it weren't for that alignment of possibility, we would have never gotten out of slavery. We'd have never gotten out of Jim Crow apartheid. Because black people, African-Americans who were living under those conditions were always aligning themselves to the possibility that they would overcome, okay? So that's the first thing is we need to understand or have an understanding of what that word can mean. It's an emotional alignment to possibility. The second word I wanna throw out there is we often talk about how do we get things to change in this country? And that word is thrown out a lot, change, change, change. And change simply means to alter. I can take a chair in my dining room and place it into my rec room and I've changed its location and I've changed the appearance of each room, but it's still a chair, right? <laughs> every single night, the moon rotates and circles around earth and every single night it changes its appearance, but it's still the moon. It's still the same size. It's still made out of the same matter. And so change more oftentimes than not when we talk about it socially, politically, is just view perspective, that's all it is. There's no material difference or alteration in the circumstance that we're looking at. To me, the real word we need to be pushing for, like acceptance to tolerance is a much bigger word, it's a much bigger leap in conduct. The real word we need to be looking for is transformation. Transformation is an alteration so profound that what, what once was, can never again be. When a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it can never again be the caterpillar. And as long as we keep talking about change in this country and bringing change, we will always just keep shifting perspective. We will never bring about the material alteration in heart and mind that will actually lead this country to become a more perfect union. It will never get to the point where the alteration is so profound that what we end up with the America we end up with can never again be the America that it was. So I always push the words hope, emotional alignment, the possibility, and transformation, an alteration so profound that we can never be what we once were. And I think if people have the vocabulary, because words are the parents to thoughts, thoughts are the parents to conduct. So we gotta have new words, they have new thought, they have new conduct. As long as we keep using the same words, We'll have the same thoughts and we'll have the same conduct. So there are a couple of words out there, acceptance, hope, and transformation. I'm pushing it. Yeah, and you know what? It is a great note uh, and an optimistic note to end on. And 
Uh, I could talk to you for hours, Michael. It is always a huge pleasure. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Thank, thanks for having me on. And, and we'll do more talking over that bottle of scotch. You got it. You're <laughs> I can't wait. All right, buddy. All thanks right. Have a good one. All Be right. Well, take care. Bye-bye. Bye.